You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 132 is Chris Franz, a founder and drummer of Talking Heads. Through their seven studio albums, you're right now hearing Psycho Killer from their first album, Talking Heads 77. He has just published a memoir, Remain in Love, Talking Heads, Tom Tom Club, Tina that I read in preparation for this, where he goes into detail about the Talking Heads years, emphasizing that no, it was not David Byrne's solo band. We're going to be discussing Warning Sign from their second album, More Songs About Building and Food, 1978, which Chris wrote the lyrics for. We'll then turn to Tom Tom Club, which was formed in 1981 while Talking Heads was still going strong. In fact, Tom Tom Club had its big single before Talking Heads did. That band, through its six studio releases, has been built around Chris and his wife, Talking Heads bassist Tina Weymouth, they generally co-write the songs, and though she was not doing press at the time, I was very pleased to have her jump in for just a little bit during this interview. We're going to discuss Bamboo Town from Tom Tom Club's second album, Close to the Bone, 1983, and also Who Feelin' It from their 2000 album, The Good, The Bad, and The Funky. We'll conclude by listening to Downtown Rockers from their latest release, Downtown Rockers 2012. You can learn more at tomtomclub.com. And learn more about this podcast at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. It would really help if you can rate and review the show. And if you really like what we're doing, please support the podcast at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. I will have played a little of the original version of Psycho Killer, which I was interested to see. I guess I didn't really realize how that was co-written, but that you had described that in your book as David came in with sort of half a song, had a verse written, had... Maybe the idea of the chorus, but in any case, specifically asked Tina to do the French part for the bridge. And then you kind of jumped in with a second verse, you know, that second verse, you start a conversation, you can't even finish it. That sort of the way the syllables don't quite fit in the line. Like I thought that was, oh, that's so David, but no, that's from you. And the, we are vain. We are blind. I hate people when they're not polite. The best line really of the song. Can you tell a little more about that story in miniature? We were all students at the Rhode Island School of Design. David by that time had dropped out even hitchhiking around the country. He uh, then returned to Providence, Rhode Island and was hanging out and auditing classes at RISD and just being part of the scene there. I had started a band called The Artistics with the intention of entertaining our friends and playing at parties and things like that and dances. Oh, we played the painting club's Valentine's Day Ball. (laughs) That was like a a super big event for this band, The Artistics. With mostly covers, right? Yes, mostly covers. But we had started thinking that, oh, gee, maybe we should write some of our own songs. At around that same time, David knocked on the door of the painting studio that Tina and I shared. Dave said, I've got this song. It's vaguely inspired by Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper was very big at the time. This is 74 or so? This is either late 73 or early 74. David said, I've got the song and I've got the first verse and I think I've got the chorus, but I need a bridge section and I need some more verses. He also said, I would like to have the bridge section be in a foreign language because I want to somehow convey this psychotic break in the narrator's mind where he suddenly starts speaking a different language. So Tina, whose mother was French and had French spoken in the home all the time, volunteered to write it in French. And I've been told since that it's a very classical French, not the slang that kids speak today. So anyway, she did that. The translation of what Tina wrote in English, what she said that night, what I did that night, realizing or making real my hopes I launch myself towards glory. So that's kind of, you know, bombastic and right in keeping with a psycho killer, I would say. David and I liked what she wrote very much. I added a couple of verses. When we got to the end, we were just sort of brainstorming and we came up with the, we are vain and we are blind and I hate people when they're not polite. And everybody agreed that that was a good idea. So, you know, after a few hours' time, we had this song, and I thought to myself, damn, I like this song very much. You know, it was just David performing it on an acoustic guitar at that point. The guitar had paint splatters on it. (laughs) So I thought, this is like a mashup between the Velvet Underground and Otis Redding, and I really dig this crazy synthesis. 
So we started performing that song with the artistics. We learned it and in our rehearsals and we performed it. And it, it right away, I mean, right away, the first time we performed it, it got a good reaction from the little audience that was assembled there. People dug it. So we thought, this is cool. Let's do another one. And we came up with actually a few songs. One was called Sick Boy, and that was never recorded. But it was kind of cool. I mean, it could have been on the Talking Heads' first album had we ever recorded it. So these are, again, group compositions that you're, at this point, doing it sort of slowly and intimately enough, and, you know, there's an openness. At this point, I would say it was just David and myself, David working out the vocals and the melody and me working on the lyrics with him. I was never a songwriter by myself. I mean, I have written a couple songs all by myself, but I'm not going to sing them to you right now. (laughs) I'm a very good collaborator and co-writer. This is my strength, I think, is as a co-writer. So I co-wrote some things with David, and this is during the time of the artistics, before we moved to New York. We were still in Providence, and one of those songs was Warning Sign. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to use this as a transition for that, because you said in your book that you wrote about 95% of the lyrics to that. Yeah. So this doesn't seem like something that you're in the room together working, That you know, this is you sitting down and coming up with the whole text here. Well, I came up with the text, or at least most of it, as I recall, During a rehearsal of the artistics and the bass player, a guy named Hank Staler, we would rehearse in Hank's apartment on Benefit Street. He had a pet rabbit. The rabbit would just had the run of his apartment. So I can remember distinctly laying on my stomach on the carpet with the rabbit hopping around as I was writing these lyrics. I had a drum beat in mind. I didn't have a melody in mind. But I had the drumbeat, which I realize now is kind of somehow inspired by Ringo Starr, his part in the song Tomorrow Never Knows. But I I wasn't thinking that at the time. I was thinking that, oh, I've got a good idea. (laughs) So we worked on that song and started performing it out with the artistics. And again, it got a very good reaction from all the art student kids. You know, they loved it. It was kind of loosely inspired by the Velvet Underground, that kind of style of noir lyrics with a little bit of a sense of humor thrown in. Can you summarize in a couple sentences what this is actually about? I know a lot of David songs really about aren't about anything, that they're non sequiturs, but this, is it a sexual predator or something like that? <laughs> no, it's not a sexual predator. It's just a guy who's overly intoxicated, a decadent guy Decadence was kind of in fashion in 1974. (laughs) It was kind of stylish to be decadent. And so it's about that. He's intoxicated on some form of drugs, and he's concerned about his hairdo, and he's getting warning signs, kind of like you read on the uh, side of a pack of cigarettes in his mind, warning signs of things to come.
So something for that is so lyrically based. I mean, it really, it's a full minute or something like two minutes in the live version where you just establish this tomorrow never knows, you know, and then instrumental build. Can you say something about the uh, evolution of that part? As with all of the early Talking Heads songs that came out of, well, after we moved to New York and after I finally convinced Tina to join the band, there was the three of us rehearsing in our loft on the Lower East Side, 195 Christie Street, now marked for demolition. Anyway, we'd come home from our day jobs in the early evening and we would make a little something to eat and then we would get to rehearsing and writing and the writing came about through extended jam sessions. Sometimes David would have an idea of a guitar part. Other times it would begin with a drum beat or a bass thing. And it was definitely a uh, kind of alchemy going on. And we didn't have a tape recorder, so we couldn't record what we were doing. So we just had to remember everything. And So David would write his part. Tina would write her part. I would write my part. And eventually we decide on an arrangement, like we're going to begin with the verse or we're going to begin with the chorus, you know, and the middle eight is going to be here. And uh, we're going to all of a sudden change tempos at this point. That was how we did it. I mean, it was really a true collaboration. Do you have something against the ride symbol? <laughs> you know, when the vocals finally come in and there's a sort of this klaxon sort of guitar part, warning sign, warning sign. Sort of naturally, any drummer I put that in front would probably fill that with ride, warning, and then tighten back up. But it seems like that's the thing that you generally avoid so that the end result is that there's crashes very regularly between the sections, but not so much filling space with ride echo. You're right. In fact, I only recently added a ride symbol to my drum kit. (laughs) (laughs) This is the music room where we rehearse, and it's part of our studio. We have tie lines to the control room from here. But this is a Gretsch vintage 1963. It's the same one that Charlie Watts played when he was a youngster. (laughs) I'm sorry, where was I going with No, that's, (laughs) I was just talking about your use of symbols and how this was structured. Like a lot of the character, because you don't fill that space, I guess it's the Eno contribution of what we're hearing like in the intro where it's just drums by themselves is a lot of this, not just delay, but like delay with a little flange or something. He had a, uh, I think it's called an EMS A something, a little briefcase size synthesizer. No keyboard, just pegs that you pull out in and out. And he had done this with David Bowie on low and, you know, uh, his own work. He would run a, an instrument such as the drums or maybe just the snare drum through this synthesizer and treat it and then mix it in with the actual recording of that instrument. He might have a lot of the treatment or he might just have a little touch of the treatment. He did that on more songs about buildings and food basically on every song. He treated something or multiple instruments. It was really cool because we had been playing on more songs about buildings and food. We had been playing most of those songs on tour already. And Warning Sign, I'd been playing for like four years already. So Eno's treatments sort of, at least for the band, breathed a kind of new excitement into the tracks. And we really appreciated that. Now, maybe this is too long ago to really remember how you felt, but between what was in your head when you put something to paper and you said you at least had a rhythm in mind, you didn't have a melody, but maybe you had a rhythm to the vocals? Yeah. You know, aside from the warning sign, warning sign, which is a very literal, but the rest of it, you know, there's nothing about, I don't care what I remember that implies, remember, like the particular interpretation that he gave to it. So did you feel like, you know, I know he was complaining why you didn't get so many lyric credits later was, and I completely sympathize with this, it's hard to sing something that you didn't write. You know, it becomes this exercise in interpreting a poem or a cover song, you know, just having to deal with this external thing and filter through and make it your own. How did you react, you know, hearing his interpretation? Did it match what was in your dream before? (laughs) Actually, I always loved David's very idiosyncratic vocal style, particularly back then. It was really idiosyncratic. At a certain stage in our development, he started to become, I don't know, more of a crooner. And I could definitely see Brian Ferry doing like, hear my voice, move my hair, I move, you know, do a more traditional lounge sort of thing. But like, no, just another variation of the psycho killer personality here, basically. Yeah, it's a continuation, you might say. 
So we developed these songs collaboratively. Tina was also a big part of it because her bass parts often, I noticed, inspired the vocal melody, or at least part of the vocal melody, if not all of it. And her playing, I was so happy it worked out because I had this idea that Tina should be in the band and that she would be a good bass player for us. She had never played bass before. She had played acoustic guitar, like folk songs. Sure. And she had also played classical flute. And at one point in her life, she was an English handbell ringer. Like she played at the New York World's Fair. I play the E flat and the D. And I just stand there. Ding, ding. And she loved that. You know, they dressed up in, I believe, Elizabethan costumes, or maybe it was Victorian. I'm not sure. But she played at the World's Fair when she was very young. She had a fantastic sense of rhythm. I knew this from dancing with her at the Rhode Island School of Design at various parties. She could really like feel the music. And I don't mean in this sort of freeform expressive way. I mean like, you know, really feeling it and getting into the rhythm of the song. So Tina was very crucial in the Talking Head sound. Yes, David had a very, he played a lot of almost a high life style of rhythm guitar. He's an excellent rhythm guitarist, and I always really enjoyed, I appreciated that, and I still appreciate that. But Tina didn't have a rock and roll vocabulary of riffs. She was entirely self-taught on the bass, and what she would come up with, I would say, is of a more classical kind of playing and arranging, more classical than, say, the blues, or you didn't hear like Chuck Berry licks or anything like that coming from Tina. Well, it seems more written with, if you're sort of newer to an instrument or, you know, if I'm doing a keyboard part, which is not my strong instrument, then it's more written with the head rather than with the hands. If you're, Uh you know, a professional bass player who has been playing constantly, then you have riffs burned into your hands. In fact, it's really difficult to break out of your awesome funkiness. Like I was very surprised when I was talking to Colin Molding from XCC that he always insists on doing bass parts last, that he really like has the entire thing before him. And then like, what melody am I hearing that the bass can fill? And though Tina seems like sort of a compromise between those two things, that you're so based in the groove and her parts groove so well, but they're also, you know, have those melodies built in. So it's halfway between. Yes, she never plays the same thing twice. It's always like starting anew. Every new song, she starts over. That's a very important aspect. It's not like she doesn't have a fluid way of playing or anything like that, that she could just play some riffs. Well, yeah, and I should say smearing, like, is writing with the hands. Like, you don't necessarily picture, I'm going to go, but, like, it just feels so good. And so many of her signature parts, like, that's something that really jumps out. Yeah. Before we go on to the next song, I want to stop and talk about our sponsor, Masterclass which allows you to learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere at your own pace. There's so many things relevant to a creative person, including not just more than a dozen music courses with great folks like Herbie Hancock, Dead Mouse, Reba McIntyre, Carlos Santana, Itzhak Perlman, Sheila E., etc., etc., but courses by world-renowned writers, stylists, business leaders. You can improve your public speaking, self-motivation, how to present yourself, and just get through life. I was tickled to see that a brand new course has been released in the music category. Jake Shimabukuro teaches ukulele. Now, my ukulele is not one of my instruments that gets played much at all, in fact. And this course is really motivating me to get back to it. Jake just shows what amazing stuff is possible on the instrument and walks you through everything from the basics to advanced techniques. I mean, there's a 15-minute lecture on tremolo, which I never mastered, and he shows you how he puts these skills into action with performances of The Beatles' While My Guitar Gently Weeps and Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. So that is tremendously fun, and of course, just one of the many courses you will get with an annual Masterclass membership. So I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a nakedly examined music listener, you get 15% off the annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off masterclass. Let's move forward a little bit. So I know that by the time of the next album or two after that, you were at least for a while writing things as a group, often starting with the rhythm parts. And that's what carried over into the first Tom Tom Club albums. I'm not sure if, so Bamboo Town was one I picked just because I thought it had a really interesting drum part and we could talk about the reggae influence and things, but just 
as representative of this whole way of writing, but you tell me, I mean, was this one that was built drums first? Yes. I was fascinated with this beat they have in reggae called the One Drop. In fact, Bob Marley wrote a song called One Drop. I don't know who invented it, but a lot of the guys played it, particularly Carly Barrett from the Whalers and also Sly Dunbar. So I love this rhythm, as they call it, and we laid it down. I did have a little assist on that particular song. I played along with a, uh, a very famous drum machine of the time. Not the Lin? Yes. I <laughs> That's the only one I know from that time. <laughs> We also had a DMX. Oh, okay, yes. Pretty groovy. That's the one that Prince would always use. So all the little snappy sound, that's all programmed. What I did was I would create the part and then I would play along with it. So it might be a hybrid of both the machine and the man.
Yeah, so it's that hyperactive hi-hat and then this rim shot thing on top of the snappy drum machine. And then there's also at the end of phrases like what? Somebody, is it Steve Scales kind of doing a little triangle riff like at the end of every couple lines? There's a lot of delay in there too, you know, in the mixing. There's what the Jamaicans would call dub-wise style delays that we decided to incorporate, not wait for the dub version. Let's put it in the original version. And you have to time that so it's in rhythm with the tempo of the song or it's tight enough that you don't really care. It's just adds some sputtering. The digital delay is timed out very carefully and added after the actual playing. It's like the icing on the cake, as it were. Which you had to do a whole, of course, you can't just turn on the plug-in like now. You had to do a whole bounce, you know, to create the, the separate track for that, right? Yes. So you guys were acting as producers or co-producers by the time of this album, right? Yep. It's a very thick song. You know, there's a little guitar at the end, but mostly like, what, three or four synths and then three or four layers of percussion. And besides the three-part chorus vocal thing, is that a lot of your role as producer is like, okay, there's still a hole there. Let's invite or do another overdub to fill that thing. Do you have any sort of general words about how you know when to stop? And like, is there parts where they're too much and you're pulling it back? With Tom Tom Club, we, we were very happy with a song that had a lot of space and not too many parts, not busy. You'll notice most Tom Tom Club songs are not what you would call busy. They don't have a lot of shredding in them or anything like that. Space enables the song to breathe and the vocals aren't having to shout to compete with the guitar part or something. Yeah, I guess I see that. I also see that though in creating this environment, like there are quantitatively, even if there's not sort of a lot of notes per second in a lot of it, there's still like a lot of layers in there. This one in particular, having those three percussion parts that are pretty consistent, you know, the triangle is not there all the time, but it keeps coming back like way more often than one would think. It's not just like a transition between the end of the first verse and the beginning of the second, like it's a every other line kind of thing. What we would do is we would get our bass and drums and a vocal outline. In that case, Steve Scales would come in. This is down at Compass Point again. And he's the engineer anyway, so he's always there. No, Stephen Stan- Stephen Stanley was engineer. Steve Scales is the percussionist extraordinaire. We would get the bass and drums sort of settled in, so we were happy with that part, and maybe a few keyboard parts and maybe a guide vocal. And then we would ask Steve to come in and just put in highlights. Tina Weymouth over there, she said there was no guide vocal. So I saw that Steve Stanley, though, your engineer, got a co-writing credit on this. Like how, given that neither of you, you and Tina, are the keyboardists, and this is so keyboard heavy, how was this? Stevie played some keyboard, and I believe we did also. But, you know, we felt it was important to give credit where credit was due. And so on our first album, we gave credit to everybody, even the tape ops, you know. (laughs) It was just important to us after some experiences we had had that we'd be extra fair with people. And and sometimes we might have been kind of overly fair, but I don't think that's a problem. I think it's okay to be overly fair. You talked about how you were co-writing some lyrics with David early on or writing some lyrics on your own and that you always had these literary ambitions. With Tom Tom Club, are you still doing that with Tina or is it mostly like lyrics for this one? Was this straight out of Tina's brain? I think mostly with Tom Tom Club, it was out of Tina's brain with little interjections by myself or even one of her sisters. Bamboo Town, I I remember writing part of those lyrics. I don't think it wrote all of them. I think I came up with a concept that we should write a reggae song about a jitney driver. That was the way people got around in the Bahamas in minivans. I was wondering what that word was because on the internet it says get me driver. I'm like, that is clearly not what is being said. Okay, but that's a thing. <laughs> jitney, which is like a, it's like a cross between a taxi and a bus. <laughs> and there is a town called Bamboo Town on the island of New Providence in the Bahamas tiny village. And it's a very old village. So that's where that came from. Do you know, I mean, this, he gave me lift, bum diddly bum, like this sort of character thing. Do you have any idea where this is coming from or why that choice? Yeah, that bong biddly bong. Remember, it was something that reggae artists would just do in their vocals. I guess probably the first person I heard say bong biddly bong was Eka Mouse. You know, that song Pass the Dutchie, 
musical youth. They did that in their songs. So it was just a reggae touch, you know, a little reggae flavor. As an art rock fan growing up in the, I went to college in the early 90s, there weren't many of the bands that I was into that actually had a real connection, an acknowledged connection, an explicitly loving connection with black music. That, you know, the fact that you guys were so rooted in James Brown and had this love of reggae and things. I mean, of course, the Clash loved reggae, reggae in particular, and the police. But like, I don't know, as a 16-year-old or a 14-year-old into the police and the cars and you guys, it certainly wouldn't have occurred to me to actually make the jump and listen to Bob Marley. Like, it was just a different sociological thing. It just, as a suburban kid, it was not on the radio stations that I was listening to. And I associated, you know, the popular R&B is like Michael Jackson. And that's just like, I bought into the disco sucks rock and roll is so pure and cool, you know, it, which is complete horseshit. But like the fact that you guys were so insistent on this connection from the start that this is, and we're going to have people of color in the band, in Tom Tom Club. And I guess part of that is just being in the Bahamas, right? Just who you were bringing in as session people. When you're in the Bahamas, you do hear a lot of reggae <laughs> and a lot of soca and their own Bahamian form of music, which is known as Junkanoo. Now there's another form called Rake and Scrape. We love that type of island music. I can remember Bob Criscow reviewing that second album, Close to the Bone, and saying it sounded like we've maybe been in the Bahamas a little too long, (laughs) which I thought was pretty funny. Oh, yeah, Bob, well, maybe you've been in New York City a little too long. What are you going to do? Everyone's a critic. Like, how do you feel like this song has aged? Like, my dad was a folk singer in the early 60s, and everybody would do a calypso tune or two. And now that's sort of seen as weirdly culturally appropriative or, you know, something that the folk singers don't do quite that anymore. That Do you have similar weird feelings about this, or is this just such a positive tribute here? Tina has something she wants to say. Forgive me, but the only way to beat racism, because we're all one race, is total cultural immersion and assimilation. That's how we were raised. Yeah, that's certainly how the history of rock and roll should reflect. It's just these weird sociological things that... Instead, it's just exploitation. Mm -hmm. We didn't think that way. I think it's partly how we were raised, but it's also partly... It's just once you're culturally immersed and assimilated, you just don't think that way anymore. There's no more fear. There's no xenophobia. And in Bahamas in particular, everyone's looking everyone in the eye. There's no fear. It's beautiful. And when we first moved to the city of New York, for instance, we were so not yet ready. You know, we didn't know about all that stuff. But look at all the kids who love rap now, who live in suburbs, you know, suburban kids. It's the only way to have a society that functions. I'm so pleased that you were sucked in to feel the need to make some comment in this interview. I want to use this as a transition to the third song, just to jump forward in time. Who feeling it from the good, the bad and the funky 2000. I just thought this had one of the best hooks to it. And it also had this very dense percussion bed with some DJ, some scratching, some other stuff like that. Do you want to say a little about where you were at by this album before we hear the song? That album, The Good, The Bad, and The Funky, we're just recently began talking about re-releasing it this time next year for Record Store Day on vinyl, and that will be fun. But that song, Who Feelin' It?, was directly inspired by our son, who's a turntablist. What year was that? Was that like two, Was that like 20 years ago? Two, I think. 2000 is the release. It's one of your yeah. more recent albums. It was like 20 years ago, and he was into scratching very seriously, and he loved what they call electro music. So we, we went to some scratch contests, uh, battles. Grandmaster Flash was there. He was one of the judges, and it, you know it was really nice to see him. Thanks to our son, we caught all these great turntablists in action. And some of them were the invisible scratch pickles and some were the beat junkies. And there's a guy named DJ Babu. There were some women who were scratching too. Most of these were, in those days, people of color, as we say. But there were some white kids too and some Asian kids. So we wrote a song. That song is basically about scratching, but it's also about our continued love for R&B music. 
Gee, I think we put Wally Badaru in there, originally from Nigeria, who was educated in Paris and then one day came to Compass Point Studios at the request of Chris Blackwell to play with Grace Jones. Uh, he did all the keyboards with Grace Jones. And he also played on Burning Down the House. And he, he didn't play on Who Feeling It, but he played on a couple songs on the second Tom Tom Club album. Wonderful guy and still a very good friend of ours. So we put Wally in. I see you have Bernie Worrell on this album. I don't know if on this track, but yeah, a name that I revere <laughs> in a similar way. Yeah, I'm sure we gave a shout out to Bernie. And it's just a really fun song. Who feeling it?
So yeah, this seemed to me, since it's such a list of people we admire, that this was probably one that you and Tina collaborated on the lyrics. That it's like, who all do we want to put in here? Where is there still room for more? That's not the only element, but like a good chunk of this very long lyric sheet is a list of people who you think are cool. That's right. That's pretty much it. Yeah. And then having a very simple hook oriented, the word who many times, the word it many times, you know, chorus to carry us through and give you something, even if the rest is coming off like a rap where you're not totally sure what you've heard until you've listened to it a couple times. But then a couple quotes from either melodically or parts of the word from Genius of Love, your first single, which it seemed like what you're going to do when they pull you down, move to the tip, groove underground. When you miss your mark, choose a brand new start, be back on stop. That you're talking, am I reading too much into it? That this is something about the evolution of your career? Yeah, that's what it is. Talking about the ups and downs and the twists and turns and all that. That anybody who's been in a band for a number of years or maybe even not for that long has experienced. This was like on a soundtrack, right? This was on American Psycho, so it was close to a hit. One of the greatest movies of all time. That was a remixed version by one of the guys from Nine Inch Nails. So just to look a little more at some of the sections here, just the very beginning of the song to hear this web of percussion here. So are these live drums or did you program the whole thing? I mean, it sounds very processed, but it still sounds like you. By this time, we had Pro Tools. Mm -hmm. So it's real playing, which is then edited. I mean, that's what everybody was doing. So if you wanted a track that was kind of dancey, you had to edit your drums. Do you go so far as to quantize or like, no, my timing is fine. We pick a section that feels groovy and we just loop that. Gotcha. No, I still do that even on acoustic, well, more for like shakers and things like that. Like, I don't want to have to play a shaker for four minutes <laughs> and be steady. It's too hard on the wrist. I'll get two measures that are good. There seem to be more going on than just hi-hat in terms of filling that space. Do you recall what else is going on here? Yeah, there's additional percussion. I'm afraid I don't have the credits in front of me. I see Steve Scales is credited for this album again, for mixing in conga, not necessarily for Abdu Umboop. Abdu Mboup, yes. We met him in Paris when we were recording Naked. Actually, Wally Badaru introduced us to Abdu, along with some other African musicians that worked on that session with us. And Abdu moved to New York, and he joined the Tom Tom Club. He had played with Manu Bango, who we actually idolized. And in fact, Abdu, while we were in Paris that time working on Naked on a day off, he took us to a Manu Bango concert that he was performing at outdoors in one of the parks outside Paris, one of the communal parks. Yeah, there's additional percussion. I mean, you know, in the Tom Tom Club, we always have some additional percussion. It's like part of the flavor. And I see in the lyrics of this song that Manu Dubango is rocking the mic like Chango. I don't know what that means. Chango is the god of thunder. Th- that is, okay. That's what was coming up. A Nigerian deity. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. So that's not just another musician that I have not heard of. Can you say anything about the career arc? I mean, it's hard at this point, obviously, to get as much attention for anything, for anyone, let alone somebody who is at their most popular multiple decades ago. In fact, we're going to close pretty soon here by playing Downtown Rockers, the title track from your most recent release, which is 2012. Why is 2012 the last thing we've heard? Are you doing more production? What are you getting up to? We did some things like we went to France and just hung out for months on end. (laughs) We went sailing. Let's just say we were enjoying the fruits of our labors. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Some people feel like compelled to work, work, work. Oh, I got to work. And uh, I did that with this book. I worked hard on this book. Let's not forget about that. Remain in Love. I really enjoyed it. I was hoping that there would be a little more, I don't know if it says something about the audience you were writing it for or what you deem as important in your memories, but there's way more about like what you had for lunch the first time you went to Paris than about how you recorded any Tom Tom Club song apart from Genius of Love. Or the first single before that. Like, there's very light on some of the details of the music. Okay, fair (laughs) enough. Next time I'll get you to uh, interview me and we'll we'll transcribe it. 
No, I understand. You know, a lot of the audience is wanting to hear. There was there's a good detail on a lot of Talking Head stuff, so that was wonderful to read. But it was it did leave me very curious. Like, I want volume two. I want to hear what you've been doing for the last thirty years because <laughs> it kind of just stops mostly after 1990 or so. We have a very nice studio here, and we should go back to it, go back and do some recording. But as you pointed out, nobody's really beating down our door for a new Tom Tom Club album or even a new Talking Heads album. Paul McCartney makes new albums all the time, and nobody gives a damn. They just want to hear those old Beatles hits, even though his new stuff is very good. I think that's just how it is, especially these days. Tell me if I'm wrong. I don't think the majority of people are as musically curious as they once were. I'm not sure why that is. I think probably it's because that people have been inundated, just inundated with schlock for like decades now. I feel like that was the story probably since you were a kid. Well, MTV didn't help, although bless their hearts. Yeah, it's probably why you guys you know, are still on the map, of course. This idea that there is rock music everywhere you go all the time. I think people just got kind of sick of it. (laughs) I think there's lots of sociological reasons for, you know, with it competing with other things. And I have a college age and and a high school age kid myself, and they're into music, but it's more singles than whatever's in their playlist rather than whole albums and certainly are not going to do the kind of thing that I really love to do. One of the reasons I have this podcast is because it gave me a reason to just listen to all the Tom Tom records in a row and listen to all the Talking Heads records in a row and really feel like what the progression is in that. And that just interests me, you know, because I've as a songwriter and I guess along those lines, I guess, you know, the reason why Paul McCartney certainly doesn't have to record anything else, but that's just like what drives him to get up in the morning. And I think different people are driven by different things. It seems like maybe you and Tina are a little more processed than product oriented. This is a distinction I've been making more recently, that it's more about the doing of it rather than, you know, I could just see Elvis Costello or I've collected a new batch of songs and now I'm putting them all up and it becomes another sort of trophy that I can. And that's actually the way I think of my songs. I'm not criticizing this, but more of a jazz funk approach. It seems to be what you guys have is just the joy of doing it. And from what you describe in the book as what you were doing when you were producing, does that satisfy some of your musical jonesing when you're just producing an album? We produced a few albums and they were good records, but you know, a big part of producing is solving problems. Got some good stories in the book about that, of like who's on what drugs and and dragging them to the studio. And After a certain point, we just said, Tina and I looked at each other and we said, you know what, let's try to solve our own problems (laughs) with these other people. I'm not saying we wouldn't take a good production job if it came our way and the artist was excited about doing something with us, but we're not going around with our hat in our hand or anything like that. We have a very good life here. I mean, I wish we could travel. I wish I could now be, you know, meeting people face to face and, you know, but considering Tina and I are very fortunate here. We're we're in Connecticut. You know, we got green trees. We only just got our power back. We had a hurricane come through. It was out for a little over a week, but it came on last night around midnight. So hallelujah. And so I was a little also surprised in reading the book. I guess I thought as producers that you would have gotten sucked into, let's get a young singer songwriter in here and we'll be their rhythm section and we'll build their arrangement. And But it seems like you have resisted that, that you've done some drumming on other people's records, but for the most part, like have not sought that out, have not used your position as studio guy to insert yourself into a million projects. I'm not really a studio drummer. Yes, I've been in plenty of recording studios, but I'm not one of those cats that just bangs out really great drum parts with the greatest of ease. It takes me a while to get it. (laughs) But we did do some work with some young artists. Some of them just kind of dropped the ball. I mean, you can only do so much, you know. Well, it's wonderful that your publishing was sufficient, that you're not feeling the pressure to hustle at this point. That's correct. Seems a lot of people got screwed out of that. And yeah, somebody's getting money for my records. Not me. but <laughs> We were very fortunate to have a really good team working with Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club. I mean, the same people with both bands behind the scenes. I'm talking about management and lawyers and accountants. And they always did right by us. Thank goodness. 
And the book is very good at, as you said, you like to give credit where credit is due of highlighting all those people that I learn more about, like who did monitor work on the tour or whatever that I would expect and how this forms the family that is the band, that it's not just the four people or whatever. It's this extended. It's like a little army going out (laughs) into the world, musical army. Well, thanks so much for doing this. Can you say a a couple words to send us off about the last song we're going to hear? Downtown Rockers, Tom Tom Club. I, I wanted to get this one because it's you singing. It has so much of the flavor of like the same bands that you heap praise on in this book, sort of revisiting that era. Yeah, this song, Downtown Rockers, was written as a tribute to all the bands that used to play down at CBGB's. You know, if it hadn't been for CBGB's, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation right now. And certainly, uh, there may not have been any talking heads, really, because CBGB's gave us the platform on which to springboard out into the world. And it was like a little incubator, but not just for us, also for the bands that are mentioned at length in this song, Patti Smith, Television, The Ramones. But then, of course, there was the B-52s and the Urban Verbs and Lou Reed and John Cale and a lot of people who were on that scene that were very, very influential people in my life. Although much had been written about that period at CBGB's, to my knowledge, there hadn't really been a song written about it. So this was our effort to pay tribute to all those bands and to the people who worked at CBGB's and Hilly Crystal, who owned the place. It's our tribute to them in song. Well, that's wonderful. Downtown Rockers, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure.
Wow, thanks so much to Chris. Talking Heads was just one of my favorite bands growing up, and it was really an honor to talk to him. And an extra treat to get those few words from Tina. I don't know that she's as fond of doing press, but when she's done with her book, maybe I'll get to talk to her. I certainly would be very pleased to do so, as well as anybody else related to Talking Heads or the many cool songwriters that they develop relationships through Tom Tom Club. I'm right now listening to some Manu Dubango on Chris's recommendation. My next release will be the one that was supposed to be this release. It's my interview with trumpeter John Hassel, as well as his bandmate Rick Cox. Having two recordings on that one made it a little more time-consuming, so I decided to get, release this one first. I have finally, successfully, through a great exertion of willpower, slowed down my recording pace to try to catch up my releases to the recordings. It has been almost a month since my last one with Peter Milton Walsh of The Apartments. I've got three more in the works, but just doing one per month, leaving some space in case, say, one of the interviews that I had already prepared for but fell through comes through after all, or any particularly amazing new opportunities. So this is a great time to email me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com if you've got suggestions for guests, if you are yourself someone who would want to be on the show, not promising it'll happen, but I'd love to have the options on the table. I hope you're all doing well. I am, as you would expect, kind of depressed, this pandemic thing, man... I did have a bright spot. My next guest actually sent me an LP of one of his old albums, and I have not had a working turntable for a long time, so I ordered a brand new one with Bluetooth and USB and have been listening to a few records upstairs in my living room. It's a wonderful lost thing. Smelling that vinyl, some of this stuff came from my parents' house. has not been open for many years. And I'm still practicing drums, but otherwise not being particularly musical. I hope you have been feeling inspired and creating during this continued 2020 hellscape. Keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. <laughs>